As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to episode 64 of the Keith Law Show, presented by Tops. Check out Tops Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Tops baseball cards. I'll be joined today by Stephen Kirkjian. If that name is familiar, that's because that is Tim Kirkjian's cousin. Stephen was a longtime investigative reporter for the Boston Globe. We're going to talk about a new series on documentary series on Netflix called This is a Robbery about the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist of 1990. If you're noticing a little bit of a change in direction in some recent episodes of this show, good job by you. That is true. Now that I'm doing uh, one episode a week of the Athletics Daily Baseball podcast, I've shifted the focus of this show a little bit more to kind of what I always wanted it to be, which is more of my personal interests. I have lots of interests beyond baseball and really enjoy talking to people, intelligent people, about those topics. And hopefully me talking to intelligent people will lead to intelligent conversations, even if I myself don't actually have anything intelligent to say. So we're going to bounce around a lot of topics. There will be some baseball mixed in here or there for sure. And you can always hear me on Fridays on the Athletic Daily Baseball Show, usually with my co-host on that show, my producer on this show, Derek Van Riper. Also, I did have my second mock draft for the upcoming MLB draft, my mock first round. That went up last week for subscribers to The Athletic. The draft itself is July 11th. My current plan is to try to do two more mocks and just to update my rankings one time before the draft. I will let you know. Also, I'm taking a few extra days off around the July 4th weekend. I've got some very good things going on in my personal life and just need a few extra days. So I that's my current planned schedule for draft content. That second mock is up already. There will be at least one more, but I'd really like to do two as we get closer to the draft itself. And before I do take those few days off, I am going to get up one more minor league scouting post, planning to hit two more games this week, uh, including Rome, uh, Atlanta's high A affiliate now, is going to be right here in Wilmington. I can't pass up an opportunity to see Michael Harris and perhaps see Freddie Tarnock. I believe he's scheduled to pitch the game I'm going to. So take a look out for all of that, and then I'll probably be a little bit, uh, I'll probably go dark a bit, over the long weekend. I'd also like to remind everyone that my second book, The Inside Game, is now out in paperback, and it looks like I'm finally going to do my first in-store 
live book signing event at the Tattered Cover in Denver, the location across the street from Coors Field, on Monday, that is July 12th, at 6 p.m. I believe there'll be another author or panelist there, maybe two. I don't know all those details yet, but I am confirmed for that. If you're going to be in Denver for any of the festivities, I would love to see you there, sign your book, maybe shake your hand. I'm fully vaccinated. Uh, And thank you for purchasing the book and for all of your support over the years. Now it is my pleasure to be joined by longtime journalist and investigative reporter Stephen Kirchin. He spent 40 years with the Boston Globe, where he headed up the Washington Bureau. He was one of the founding members of the Spotlight team. He won three Pulitzer Prizes for his investigative reporting. And if you've seen the Netflix series, This is a Robbery, which is on the Isabella Gardner Museum heist in Boston in 1990, his name might be familiar to you. It might also be familiar to you because he is the cousin of my longtime colleague at ESPN, Tim Kirchin. Uh, also, Stephen has written a book on the uh, on the Gardner heist um, called Master Thieves, the Boston gangsters who pulled off the world's greatest art heist and uh, helped run a podcast called Last Scene through WBUR Public Radio in Boston. Stephen, thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you for having me, Keith. It's uh, great to meet a, a friend of, uh, of Cousin Tim's. <laughs> he, is, uh, he speaks very highly of you. He says you're the greatest investigative reporter in the Boston Globe's history. Well, I think that's uh, more my cousin, the cousin talking. than, uh, But I, I do enjoy it. I have long enjoyed doing investigative work, particularly in the city of Boston, where I think uh, it's, uh, it's been needed and the Globe has been a, um, you know, a beacon of that kind of reporting crusading reporting. So let's start with the with the heist, which I've always been very interested in. I read, I think it's Bob Whitman's book, uh, Priceless, a couple of years ago. And that was great. And that was where I learned about that. And I actually started college just a few months after the heist took place in 1990. I went to college in the Boston area. And so it was still in the news. Yeah. So I've always kind of been aware of it. Um, the documentary, but I certainly learned a lot from it. For, for listeners who don't know, though, can you give just a quick synopsis of what this was and why why are we still talking about this 30 years later? Well, the documentary did put it on the international scale, thankfully, uh, because it is familiar and, not, and known uh, by pretty much everyone uh, uh, who lives in and around Boston or appreciates art. Uh, on the night of March 18th, 1990, and I say the night, it was probably 1.30 in the morning, uh, two men uh, dressed in police uniforms uh, walked up to the side door of the, the employee's entrance of the, um, the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, which had been there in, since the early 1900s uh, in, in, a, in, a, in an absolutely extraordinary uh, jewel gem at the time uh, when it opened uh, on Boston's uh, art scene. And uh, they identified themselves as police officers, Boston police officers there to investigate a disturbance. They tricked, uh, you know, they cajoled the, the one night watchman who was behind the security desk to let them in. And once in, they um, tricked him to step away from the only alarm bell inside the museum. The museum's security was improving, but it was not a state of the art. And the two night watchmen, including the man behind the desk, were not up to speed. They, one had never worked the shift before. And one had for about a year, but he was more interested in getting his rock and roll band up and uh, uh, known around Boston than he was in, in that shift. 
He was often stoned. He was often drunk. He says he wasn't that night, but he acted in a very, very negligent way. They're not criminal to anybody's known, known. But they tied them up, put them downstairs, and then spent about an hour, uh, all, all in all, more than 80 minutes inside the museum. They got 13 pieces, uh, four masterpieces, uh, two large Rembrandts, in uh, one Vermeer. Uh, there are only uh, 35, 36 Vermeers uh, known to have been painted. Uh, uh, a lot, many, a lot more uh, Rembrandts, large Rembrandts, uh, but only one seascape. Only one time did he paint the sea. And there it hung on the second floor of the Isabella Stewart Gardner. And it was taken down from its, um, uh, from its uh, uh, holdings and uh, ripped, uh, uh, cut out of its, its stretcher. And uh, both two large Rembrandts, the Vermeer, and another smaller painting, uh, a Manet, was taken. Uh, but in all, they, they estimate if you could sell it, but you, but you can't sell it on the market. But if you could sell it, it's a billion dollars, B billion worth of art that was stolen that night. There were other smaller pieces, some sketches by Degas, uh, try to figure out why they would have stolen that. Uh, the, why would they uh, have gone into that room and stolen these sketches by Degas? Or even more um, peculiar, why they would have taken the top of a flagpole Right. <laughs> called a um, uh, they tried to get a, uh, a Napoleonic banner that uh, the, the that hung from the flagpole, uh, but they weren't able to get that. Uh, but they took the finial, um, and uh, th so thirteen pieces of all they left in uh, at uh, almost three o'clock in the morning, uh, and disappear into the night and. Um, that now, 30 plus years later, 31 years later, uh, still not a single piece has been recovered, not a single arrest, and most peculiar of, of all, not a single uh, authoritative sighting of any of the artwork. It's like it's they have disappeared um, So uh, since uh, that night. Uh, by uh, that the authorities have acknowledged. The FBI took over the case, has worked uh, diligently on it. I don't think very creatively, but uh, uh, but they have worked diligently on a follow-up every lead. The museum has a security director who works hand in glove. They speak daily to the FBI's uh, lead agent on the case. Um, but uh, still, the frames are empty. Uh, the, uh, the museum, Mrs. Gardner, mandated that uh, the museum could not, once she passed away in the mid twenties, her will uh, had that provision that nothing could change inside the museum uh, 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 once she passed. And so uh, yes, the, the artwork of the ages, some of the artwork of the ages have been taken, but they have put the empty frames back up on the wall. I think it adds a, a real air of uh, mystery, of course, but also a, a, a sense of loss. Uh, when you go into that room, I akin it to being the first person at a wake. Uh, it's that sense of loss. 
and um, uh, in, in, in the case remains. So uh, I had been, I was in Washington when the, when the theft happened. And when I came back, I got back into my usual routine of doing investigative reporting and thought the mid nineties that not, a must, not enough had been reported on it. So with another uh, person in the newsroom, got on it. And, uh, and then in 97, the Herald, this is a competitive town, newspaper-wise, um, that Boston Herald reporter uh, headlined, we've seen it. Mm-hmm. And he uh, reported, or they reported that he had been taken uh, to an undisclosed location and shown uh, for a moment uh, the storm, the, the seascape by Rembrandt that had been stolen, the storm of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, we, the globe was flat-footed on it. Uh, you know, I, as I, you know, a bit embarrassed because uh, I had done some reporting on it, but I got back on the case and uh, turned out it wasn't. In fact, it was just the uh, fellow who had shown it to him was a uh, a low-level hood who was trying to get a pal of his out of jail, and he hoodwinked certainly hoodwinked the reporter, but was also trying to hoodwink the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office into to give a, a series of meet a series of conditions, including getting his pal out of jail, uh, in order to bring in what he said was the real stuff, um, and that's why he had yeah, shown it, shown the, the the portrait in a flash to the reporter, and. Um, uh, so the, the 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 feds did not would not meet the conditions. So that after a few months, that uh, attention sort of dwindled. But I stayed on the story. Finally, got the museum to to uh, provide me some of their documents on the case, and uh, including who the uh, who the two night watchmen were on that night. And I tracked down the one night watchman who was behind the security desk, which I think some quest- great questions remain about his actions that night. Uh, and I, he was up in Vermont, cold winter night, tra- tra- wandering all over the town trying to find him. His wife said, he said he'll be home. He'll be home at 9.30 or something. And finally, he did come home at 9.30. And I knocked on his door, told him who I was. And we spent uh, the rest of the night talking. And and he gave me a plausible explanation, but uh, as to his why he had broken the regulations or the guidelines of the of the museum and letting anybody into the museum after hours. Uh, But um, like I said, sort of not a screwball, but attention to detail was not his strength. Uh, A bit of a know-it-all and. and uh, and and the rest is history. And been a long uh, sort of unfortunate history uh, to the case, but I do think that this attention that uh, uh, in the document that the documentary brought to the case may be uh, providing the essential information, the tip to to the authorities. Hopefully, hopefully, hopefully yes. Because well, it seems to me that there are two. This story is interesting. For two different reasons. One is we want to get the art back. As you said, this is Rembrandt's only seascape. It's one of only a handful of Vermeers known to be in existence. 
Some of the some of the pieces are worthless, but many are irreplaceable. I, I don't think anything that was worthless. No level. Yes, that's true. That's probably a better way to say it. And then, but also, there's the mystery of who did this and and why. Yeah. And one thing that's interesting, and I know your your book goes into this the podcast and the, right. the series also is. There's a huge tie here to organized crime right. that I think people don't associate that with art theft. They think art theft and they picture like, you know, a dapper gent in a suit who right. you know, gently goes in. I, right. I the two extant theories, uh, uh, because it happened in Boston and we have uh, Boston like sort of the West Side and in, um, in New York uh, has a strong um, – loyalties back in the day to the IRA. Uh, could they have been stolen? The IRA had stolen a, a Vermeer in, in England uh, and traded it, uh, tried to trade it for, for, for money to buy munitions. Could this have been something similar? Um, it just, you know, I, I looked at that. I just couldn't find any sort of oh, threads that worked. Uh, I uh, liked better uh, the idea that the bad guys, the Boston uh, gangs, had uh, had been had known about this, mm-hmm. and uh, what what was going on in Boston in the night in 1990, as it had been going on for several years before, was a gang war. Uh, the lead Boston uh, organized crime family, the Angulo family, had been taken down by an indictment in the mid 80s. Uh, and uh, two rival gangs were fighting for control of the underworld in Boston. Uh, as I did my reporting, uh, and I had never covered the mob. I, that was I had done government and, and uh, uh, public corruption, uh, government corruption and waste, and, uh, or, um, but organized crime had moved to terrific reporters concentrated on organized crime. But as I kept talking to people, they kept telling me that uh, in Boston, among the gangs, uh, uh, the uh, artwork was a known as a get out of jail free card, just like in the Monopoly, get out of jail free card. <laughs> and um, worked it back and found that there had been a, a not a mobster, but a, a criminal, longtime uh, criminal who had stolen everything, uh, including, I think, the state seal at one point, the official state seal up at the Massachusetts State House. He had um, he had stolen uh, a Rembrandt out of the MFA back in the seventies uh, because he thought it would he could barter better with the authorities on getting a lower sentence for a um, theft of uh, Wyeth paintings that he had been caught uh, carrying out a, a year or two before up in Maine. And uh, that sort of made sense to me, uh, but I didn't have uh, the wherewithal to figure out who was in jail, who was, um, you know, who would need to be sprung. Mm-hmm. And I had lots, a lot of good stuff. Uh, I had done all of my uh, reporting in 2013, 2014 uh, on the book, and I had a deadline, excuse me, September 2014. And so I was uh, banging away in the typewriter that summer, and I get a call down here at my home 
in, in Plymouth. And a guy says, are you Steve Kirkchen? I said, yep. And he said, uh, well, uh, I understand you're writing a book on the Garden Museum. And I heard good things about you. And I wanted to ask you, what's your theory on the case? So I told him my theory about this guy or that guy. And he said, no, no, that's not it. It was done to get Vinnie Ferrara out of jail. And I said, Vinnie Ferrara, tell me about Vinnie. He said, do you have a computer there? I said, yeah, I've got it right in front of me. I'm writing a book. So he said, look up Vinnie Ferrara when he went to jail. So I uh, opened it up and there it was in November of 98, mm-hmm. four or five months before the March left, Vinnie Ferrara got had been uh, arrested and put in jail for racketeering. And Vinny was the head of one of the two gangs that were vying for control of the Boston mob. Um, and uh, and his uh, and the, the fellow went on and said, uh, listen, uh, you don't know this, but uh, if you can confirm it, I'm telling you this is the truth. Uh, Vinny Ferraro was visited in jail soon after Vinny was arrested and said, Vinny, we're not going to win this war without you on the street. And I know the way to get you out in the street. The authorities will let you out if we get something so dear, so important to them. And, uh, you know, it worked before, and it'll work this time. So when he says, listen, I don't know what you're talking about. And who was the guy? The guy was his driver and a lower level member of his gang, a fellow named Robert Donati, D-O-N-A-T-I. And Donati, and so I said, uh, no, I'm, I'm taking notes furiously. And I said to the guy, where are we here? So he says, um, well, we spent the next week, in fact, talking about the detail of what he knew. And he wanted to be known as a, um, a um, intermediary mm-hmm. to, to Vinnie Ferraro. And I said, well, how about a source? And he said, uh, I'm saying intermediary. And, you know, when you're dealing with people from the underworld, you've got to be, you can charm them, but you're not going to win. You set out a position uh, and you, and you, but you're not, you're going to have to give in to them uh, or if you're going to play with them. And I knew this guy uh, had good authority. So I said to him, how about this? I said, I don't want to be lying to my readers or whom I'm talking to. How about if I say you called me and asked to be named as an intermediary? And uh, and later on in the chapter, I'll talk to you as a source. And he said, okay, fine. So that's how he reads in the book. Uh, but he tells me of conversations, three conversations. Uh, one before one just after, in one several months after the theft uh, with Donati that uh, Ferrara had. And uh, and the detail was pretty compelling. Uh, I was not able to get uh, confirmation from anybody because there was this conversation between Ferrara and Donati. And Donati was killed uh, a year after the theft, 16 months after the theft. Um, and my belief is, and I think the feds believe this as well, uh, that what happened was Donati was able to pull off the robbery. Uh, one clincher on that, Donati had been with that with the art thief back in the 70s who pulled off the theft of the Wyeth paintings up in Maine. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he was with him. I don't think he was with him when he pulled off the theft 
but he knew that this was a, an idea that had some, uh, some credibility. So he, uh, so I, I think the, the version of events that I tell in the book of Donati visiting Ferrara, telling him he's going to do it, pulls it off. But Ferrara says to him, I'm not getting involved. Do not do this for me. Mm. So I'm thinking and it's the most compelling part of the narrative for me that this is Bobby Donati, very low level, very undereducated. Not at these and those guys, he had pulled off a couple of other uh, stolen securities, but he's not a, a big time operator. He doesn't have access to how to try to do this off in a very sophisticated way. So I'm thinking he gets left with the artwork of the stolen artwork of the ages mm-hmm. in his house hmm. for several months. And he tries to fence it in the way he does. But I think the, uh, the flaw was that when you deal, when you go, you know, his network is, I've always thought, who had uh, uh, a, a path, uh, a channel to the outside world? Who could meet up with someone who had international, um, whoever stole this, who had access to the international um, uh, fencing rings. Bobby Donati did not, but he had low-level mobsters in the Boston area who would cut your throat for advantage. And I think that's what happened. Bobby was got very well known in the underworld that Donati had these, uh, had this on. And uh, whoever he stashed it, he stashed it. Uh, but uh, he was brutally murdered. He was found um, almost decapitated in his trunk of his Cadillac uh, in East Washington. Just not for that. Uh, but uh, I think he just told the wrong people that he had access to this object. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. So one of the things that comes out in the show, and I know from some other readings, that the problem with stolen artwork is you can't just can't just put it on eBay, right? No. And you can't just you know you talk about him fencing or fencing a Rembrandt is different than fencing electronics or lots of other things. And so one of the theories, and tell me if you agree with this, is that they might have gotten a hold of this stuff, and when it became clear they weren't just going to say trade it in to get Ferrara out of prison, there was. It's just not easy to dispose of. No, no. 
And that may be why we're in this situation where we still don't actually know where they are. Yes. It is the other, you know, for a reporter or an investigative reporter like myself, what is is not the story. It's mm -hmm. how you perceive and what is. Mm -hmm. So I uh, use that to say, okay, we know that um, uh, that he pulled it off. He had the artwork with him. Uh, it, it was, then what did he do with it? Or could he have destroyed it? And I'm still, I get not haunted by that possibility. Um, although the bad guys whom I've spoken with and whom I trust say, we don't, we don't destroy the cork of the bottle of that wine you just opened. The bottle doesn't really matter, but the cork is something. So, um, and it's <laughs> funny that every mobster whose house they, they raid, it takes two days to empty the house. Because mm -hmm. they're all hoarders. They keep everything. <laughs> and I think that so they don't throw away stuff. So I'm thinking Donati um, stashed it. He didn't throw away, he stashed it. And that's where the, um, the secret lies. I think wherever. Now, Donati was a good repairman, uh, good with his hands, and, and, um, and a good hiding things. What they in the in the uh, in the mob world or the criminal underworld is known as hides, H I D E S. He was good in making hides in the various houses. I'm not sure that the feds have knocked on every door and uh, um, and uh, sought access to every place he may have had um, access to that he could have put a hide in. But um, save for that, I, I I don't buy the the belief that the IRA was involved, why whoever bought it. And I, my thinking is the big, the major pieces of art, the Rembrandts, the two large Rembrandts and the Vermeer, he may have been able to sell them to whomever, uh, but what they would have done with it, well, you can't show it to anybody uh, because you, if I show it to, no matter who, I show it to whom I show it to, they are going to, they have a, a great option available to them. Blow the whistle. The feds have said, there's a $10 million reward. In this case. Can you believe there's a $10 million reward? In, in 30 plus 31 years, there's not a single sighting of any of the artwork. It's, uh, it's confounding and uh, um, a great mystery. Uh, but until the uh, uh, another approach is taken. I think it's going to stay in mystery. And uh, I have uh, written about this, this other idea I have in trying to um, get people to cooperate. But everyone is dead. Every bad guy who could have gotten his hands on this artwork, they're all dead or they're in old age homes. And they're not talking. We've approached all of them. Uh, so, but I do think families and associates uh, know know some things. Uh, they may not know the hiding place, but they know that uh, their grandfather uh, had an association with that gang or this other gang, and he once said that if any of that stuff was ever to be hidden, this is where they would hide it. But Back in the day of the 80s and 90s, Omer, this, you should not talk about anything. 
you know, the secret road map, you know, it's all the, you know, Joe Pesher and, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, these people have made careers out of showing this on, on screen. Mm-hmm. But that world doesn't exist anymore. And I think that that has to be shown, stated, except promoted to the outside world, the world of Boston, because there's still families, there's still neighborhoods where the belief is you don't talk on anybody. You don't say nothing. So you don't say what your grandfather had said to you 25 or 30, your late grandfather said to you. And this is how I, I would say to convince, to put this out there. You know, those empty frames, you know, and you can see them on the internet. Uh, and like I say, it's like walking into a wake when you go into the second floor Dutch room where the, where the major pieces were taken. Put in front of those empty frames, not the museum trustees or the director who has suffered badly because they don't have credibility in the bad guy world. And don't put the FBI in there because they don't have any credibility. Put somebody who does have credibility. I'm not talking about other criminal associates. But put somebody like our uh, Boston Cardinals O'Malley in front of those and have him, you know, have him say something about the need for redemption, the need for closing this circle, this loss. And why is it important for Boston? Well, we've suffered a ter- terrible loss here. You, you remember in the 2000, in, I'm say 18, uh, Super Bowl game mm-hmm. that uh, we beat Atlanta in. Was that what year is it? 2017, 18? Tom Brady's jersey Mm. stolen out of the of the uh, clubhouse after he, you know, the every all the celebration went into the to the to the uh, Patriots clubhouse. His jersey was stolen. Let me tell you, there were torchlight parades in Boston. Get Tom Brady's jersey back. Right. <laughs> we care about these things. Now, if we care about Tom Brady's jersey, we've got to touch that pulse to say we care about this artwork. And why is this artwork? Let me tell you, this hit me back in 2014. That was the summer of the Ice Bucket Challenge. Mm-hmm. There was another way of touching people's heart. And it's with the story of why those paintings are on the wall. Why Mrs. Gardner built this museum. She put them on the wall for us. True, true story. She was a well-born Brahmin who came to Massachusetts, married uh, one of our richest entrepreneurs, lost her son, and he, to relieve her of the grief, took her on world travel. Mm-hmm. On, and she visited the art capitals of the world, but she also visited civilizations you know, in Japan and China, where art of ancient times was still precious. And she realized that the civilizations that survived were those civilizations that produced great art. And she wanted that for us in America. This is in the Industrial Revolution. America's taking off as a world-class country, but we don't have an appreciation for art. She wanted to bring art to the United States, America. So that's why she collected this wondrous art and put it on the walls of this museum that when it opened in 1903, she made one uh, 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 pledge, free of charge to everyone. The second pledge came 20 years later. All school kids will come into bo- onto the museum 
free of charge. So every Boston school kid, public school kid, gets at the eighth grade, bored silly, walking through the, uh, the museum. But you could see why she wanted to do it. And I say, play on that theme. The she wanted, let me say, it works for me. Absolutely mm-hmm. works for me. Your, your listeners can't see it. But behind <laughs> me is a painting done by my father. My father was an uh, 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 immigrant, survivor of the Armenian genocide, came to this country in the 1920s, saw that they saw in high school that he had artistic talent. And they sent him off. They got him a scholarship to a local art school. He would go to the school during the day. And at, in the afternoons, he would walk over to the Gardner Museum. Why? Because it was free of charge. <laughs> and he would walk over and he could study the masters. He could get up close and study the masters. And my father raised our family, allowed me to go to college and law school and whatever, have a life of, of, of richness. Uh, and she helped in that. And I think that that theme should be exemplified. And you can do it to have a social media campaign. Like I said, in the summer of 2014, was the summer of the Ice Bucket Challenge. That, cha- that campaign, just with people pouring buckets of ice over their head, raised $80 million in two months' time. You can look it up, as they say in baseball. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in July and August of 2014, the Ice Bucket Challenge raised mm-hmm. $80 million in donations for ALS research. So it works. So that's the way, I think, to appeal to people's general generosity, to their better angels, as Lincoln said, and to say, get this artwork back. And this city has re- recovered from the worst since 9-11, mm-hmm. the worst terrorist act in America happened in Boston in 2013. And we, we lost five people, but we recovered because of the, you know, the, the, the strength of the city. And um, in, in, in the, the great work of the uh, first responders in, in, the, um, in the hospital, the medical staff. And I think that that point, this, the recovery of the city has you know, furthered us along as a world-class city. And I think this too is a, needs to get that sort of campaign behind it to get this up. Uh, yeah, uh, the recovery awaits. Uh, the, the Boston's designation of the world-class city awaits recovery of these bands. Well, I hope you're right. I, I hope your uh, optimism is well-founded and we do get the paintings back, well, even some of the paintings. My guest today has been Stephen Kirkchen. He is the author of Master Thieves, the Boston Gangsters Who Pulled Off the World's Greatest Art Heist. You can also listen to his podcast called Last Scene, S-E-E-N, which was produced by WBUR. And he appears in the new Netflix documentary called This is a Robbery, which I also highly recommend. Stephen, Schnorragalatun. Schnorragalatun. <laughs> thank you so much, Keith. Bob, thank you for setting it up. I appreciate it. That's all for this week's show. Thank you so much for listening. Stay safe. Go get that vaccine. <laughs>